Hello listeners, thanks for joining me for this episode of Figureheads. This week I'm joined by award-winning stage director and current artistic director of the Donmar Warehouse, Michael Longhurst, and Henny Finch, executive director of the Donmar. Mike is a multi-award-winning director who has directed smash hit productions at the National Theatre and sell-out shows in the West End and on Broadway. Before recently joining the Donmar, Henny was responsible for producing critically acclaimed international productions for Hoffe Schechter Company, one of the world's leading dance companies, taking large-scale productions to the world's major stages like the Sydney Opera House, La Scala and the Royal Opera House. I spoke to Michael and Henny about the importance of purpose within a business. Hello, Michael and Henny. It's Warwick here. Hi, Warwick. Lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet you, Warwick. Very nice to virtually meet both of you as well. Uh, as always, because of the current COVID situation, we're not able to be in person in the same room. I'm getting very used to meeting people via screens. I'm going to have to get used to wearing trousers again to do these interviews once <laughs> this whole thing passes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, Michael and Henny, you work together at the Donmar. Uh, in what capacity do you work together? So, Michael, what do you do? What's your role there? My job is artistic director. Mm-hmm. So um, I am essentially responsible for setting the um, creative direction of the company. So my job is to work with the team to choose the the plays that we want to produce, to choose the artists that we work with, and to sort of set our creative agenda in terms of what we stand for, what our mission, what our artistic mission and vision and values are. And Michael, what do you base those decisions on? Personal preference or do you think of the Donmar itself? What I try to do is I can bring my taste as an artist. I listen to the audience needs. I like to think that we bring exciting um, new new stories to them and that there's a sort of fusion of taking us both on a journey um, as we kind of move forward in the world because mm-hmm. I want my art to feel resonant and relative. It needs to be an important story and then our job is to tell it thrillingly. And Henny, what about you? Well... My job is to support and deliver Mike's artistic vision. Mm. So um, he comes up with with where we're heading creatively, and then I put all the building blocks around it to make it happen. So I look after the the finances and strategy, and um, I do lots of fundraising, and I manage the team, and I look after marketing, and I just keep things ticking along in order for us mm. to be able to put the work on stage. So would it be up to you to put the brakes on his ideas if you didn't like them? And have you ever done that? I don't think I would ever need to do that because his ideas are really good. I deliver structure. Mike does inspiration, a vision, and I do structure. Oh, that's great. Yeah, cool. So an idea, it's... just to, to jump in, Warwick, an idea yeah. sort of that exists in space. And then, until it, it has that sharpening and focus in conversation with Henny, mm. it, it's just an idea. And the act of our discussions is what goes, well, who is this piece of art really for and what are we trying to say with it? And what's the best platform and way to deliver it? And so it's it's a kind of synergy of our approaches that make something concrete and make it best. And uh, in an ideal world, Michael, how do you see theatre in the future? Oh, I mean, open. Um, I think I think the pandemic has made us collectively as an industry really look at ourselves. And it has exposed um, 
things that were hard in the structures of the industry. You know, lots of uh, public subsidy means that we should be reflecting the needs of all the public, not some of the public, and who has access to culture, who gets to enjoy it, who gets to consume it, who gets to make it, which stories are we telling? Mm. And we're asking these questions, really, really um, interrogating ourselves and trying to change that. And what sort of stories do you think that theatre should be telling? Uh, for me, theatre has to... Um, Theatre artists and theatre needs to be the centre of the conversations we're having now. So it's about our society and it's about who we are as humans. I mean, almost all stories come down to who am I? Mm. And letting different artists ask that question enriches us because I think theatre is an amazing medium for empathy. I go in, I, I understand that I am more like people I didn't know I was like and that encourages my empathy across time and space and that's what theatre can do. Absolutely. Well, today's um, podcast the overarching lesson we want to get from this is about purpose and profit. I expect you to have made decisions about kind of the purpose of the Donmar going forward and bringing your own values to that, Michael, which you've already spoken about. Well, that's a distinction between us and a kind of standard business is, of course, that we're not um, led by um, having to make a profit and and, and reporting to stakeholders. We, we are led by our values um, and we make decisions based on the impact we're going to have on people, beneficiaries, participants in our education programmes and audiences. It's important that all the revenues we make get ploughed back into making um, great work that benefits people. So I suppose there's a bit of a distinction from from what we do compared with um, the listeners um, to this. But there's probably le- lessons that kind of carry across because listening to stakeholders and delivering to your values is also an important thing for businesses to do. Mm. We exist in the subsidised theatre and the Dormar is semi-subsidised and is subsidised by philanthropy and sponsorship and many things. And it's a really precious thing. Having worked in the States that doesn't have Arts Council subsidy in the same way, you notice the effect of the stories people try to solve because ultimately decisions are made by the bottom line. It affects the risks you take. It affects who you put on stage. Uh, it means that you use tried and tested people. Mm-hmm. And, and it's all understandable when, when, when the commerciality is the leading principle. So it's an incredible privilege to say we can lead with mission. And that doesn't mean we have to. We still have to program responsibly. There are still spreadsheets and, uh, and budgets that need to be balanced. But we are allowed to say this is a good thing. Mm-hmm. We believe in this as a good thing for society. Well, there are a lot of companies out there looking at how they can be part of helping society, either through inclusion or diversity initiatives, uh, or being more environmentally aware. Uh, But you have to do that carefully, don't you? Because you can be seen as just doing it for the sake of. It's not something you can fake, is it, Michael? No, and it's something, as you say, that needs a profound kind of deep commitment. Mm. And it's a journey to do because it it can sometimes be hard because it means taking risk sometimes or taking risk in the short term. Because, you know, often it's about who's had opportunity in the past. But if you haven't been given the opportunity to make a body of work, then actually it's the job to change your mindset and say, how can the Donmar support you to have this opportunity? Mm. Um, but it, it is deep work and it's, 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 it's easy to, to get wrong in the desire to do it straight away or to achieve it straight away. For example, quotering systems is something that is, you know, it's very hotly discussed because in terms of looking at the balance in your season, in terms of representation, mm. how many uh, lead artists are female, how many lead artists are male, how many artists are white, all these questions are there. There's a version where you go, right, it's going to be X percentage this, X percentage that. If me as a white man starts putting those quotas out, in a way, you can make artists feel like they're only there because of your quota rather than they're there because your passionate determination to 
improve things. No artist wants to feel like they're a tick box. No. So yeah, myself as a disabled actor, I do sometimes feel that um, I'm hired because I'm allowing the uh, employer to tick a box. And uh, that's not a great feeling, to be honest, because, you know, I'm obviously bringing talent to the table. I don't see myself as a short actor. You know, I see myself as an actor primarily. And it took me a long time uh, in my career to actually turn that around in my own head even, and especially in the, the heads of producers and directors, you know, to see me as an actor and see past my disability. So um, it's really about how that's done. It should be done in a very mindful way and a very kind of compassionate way as well. And if you're looking to embed change within your organisation, we've also found that consulting with teams at every step of the way is the way to capture the voices, you know, that aren't just the leadership in the in the institution about how you make decisions. Mm. And it's really potent, actually. It's really good to have voices that are maybe closer to the, you know, ears on the ground mm. um, that we capture and listen to. So I guess my advice to the people who are listening to this is, is you've probably got people in your organisations who have expertise and have voices who need to be heard. And it's really great to create structures within your business. So it's not all being made top down because you can't really change things top down. Mm-hmm. It's easy for us to say maybe because we've got quite a small um, organisation. But um, as the larger you get, I guess that's more and more challenging. But uh, there's definitely structures that can help to make people's voices feel meaningfully um, heard. And, and that's how you make change. Mm. So a question for both of you. Why do you think then it's taken so long for theatre to diversify? I think a lot of it's to do with money. Mm. Because the people who have had the money and um, making stories that respond to people's unconscious bias, so the same type of story ends up getting told. Um, I mean, plays have historically focused on on white men because they've had the power. So the kings, the white men, so plays are about the kings, and and, and you keep telling that, and then and then the person who gets to write that story has experience and and has success, and they get recommissioned. And what we do is we stay within a, a small, tried and tested group rather than pushing beyond that. And what it does is it takes us to really listen to our audiences of the world. And so those are not necessarily the stories we should be telling. We need to break out of those. Mm. It's also about making sure that the gatekeepers and the people who are making the decisions about what to programme are truly representative. And that's about supporting people to enter the sector um, and um, just making sure that we have a good pipeline of interesting people who are ultimately going to be the artistic directors of the future. To both of you again, do you ever fear kind of being a beacon for change like you are it makes you quite vulnerable doesn't it because if it doesn't work out then um it could damage your reputations as professionals and also the don mars yes um uh, as an artist a freelance artist i was never afraid of it Mm. once you move into a position of being an artistic director or a ceo or having to look closer at the figures it becomes scary but it's about how you set up the strategy to deliver it how you take people on a journey because, as you say, audiences and businesses and our members are excited uh, to be in a, a position, uh, you know, social justice is so important. Mm. In fact, those are the bits of our business model that are the, e- the easiest to get funded because everyone is excited about saying, I, uh, you know, I have helped make this happen. So, Michael Henney, in your first season at the Donmar, you had great success with a production called Teenage Dick. For our listeners... Please, can you summarise what the production was? Teenage Dick is a play by Mike Liu, 
He's a Chinese American playwright, um, and he had been inspired by an American actor who had cerebral palsy who wanted to play Richard III. And Richard III is famously a king whose uh, spine had curvature in it. And so he's one of the sort of, I guess, major characters in the disabled canon. Um, and it hasn't always been played by disabled artists historically, often not. And uh, he had enticed uh, Mike to write an adaptation of Richard III set in an American high school. Um, and call it Teenage Dick. And he enjoyed the kind of, I guess, risque pun in there for young Richard. And he wanted to do that to really examine disability in our current society. And essentially, I guess, look at the uh, causes of, or look at the motivations of Richard's behaviour in the story through a modern prism. Why does uh, Richard go on for the murderous rampage he does? Can we have empathy for that journey? Can we understand how our society is complicit in making his behaviour inevitable? Um, and so uh, provocative stuff, but ultimately really sort of getting behind uh, the psychology of Richard and what it would be like as a young teenage disabled student to exist in a school that caters for the able-bodied, what that might do to that, uh, to a young Richard. Uh. I'm going to, uh, Mike probably can't say this as the director of it and he's being modest, but it's also absolutely hilarious as a play and he directed it thrillingly with this huge kind of high school prom dance sequence towards the end. And uh, it was actually a really kind of cracking night out. Loads of laughs, really beautifully designed, really beautifully put together, fantastic cast. It was just a glorious celebratory piece of work to be done. We did it over Christmas and it felt like, you know, a celebration and a really positive story to tell, but also just really engaging for the audience. Mm. So of all the shows that you could have chosen, why did you choose Teenage Dick? for your first season? Well, I've been passionate about um, trying to make sure that our stage has better inclusion. And I was looking at, you know, um, representation of disabled artists and about 14% of the general public has a visible or non-visible disability. And we record those stats in our theatre and it's an area that Donmar could do better. And so we were mindful to try and make that project. And so we were looking for scripts. Um, our casting director was doing general meetings with uh, actors with disability um, because I just know what the Donmar can do in terms of platforming a story and making a story the centre of a conversation. Mm -hmm. So um, you, in fact, cast a disabled actor in the lead role for Teenage Dick. The first stage direction in the play is this needs to be played by a disabled artist. And in some sense, the, the clarity and confidence of the writer to say, you don't get to tell this story all this modern retelling of the story without the people that it's about became the guiding principle for the project. Anna Cooper, our casting director, had a casting general with Daniel Monks. Mm. And the script was originally written for an actor with cerebral palsy in America, and Daniel has hemiplegia, and that started a really fruitful discussion between the writer and Daniel, mm. and the writer wanted to rewrite his play for this incarnation to be specific to Daniel's disability, which made... A I mean, there were heartbreaking new facets to the story that came out of that conversation that made the art as a whole better. And that's, I think, you know, it's really doing that consultancy, but not doing that consultancy so that you can carry on doing what you want to do. Mm. And, it, you know, or putting pressure on the consultant to give you the answer you want. It's about saying, and it's hard to do, and I've, you know, I've definitely got it wrong, but when you get it right, you actually realise, you, you find nuance in what you're doing and complexity and and obviously the, you know, the disabled community is a large community with many and varied opinions but that principle for that show was to have 
And it's great that in the um, heart of the show, there are two disabled characters. So no single character has to represent the whole of the community. Richard uh, is classically a villain. And Daniel loved playing a villain. Mm. Because often as a disabled artist, he gets to play what he would call the Tiny Tim character, where yeah. people pour pity on him and he doesn't mm. get agency. And so he loved, you know, going on a murderous rampage through the course <laughs> of the play. But he did it with more compassion because he understood and represented the slights of the world and how other people's behavior towards him justified, essentially, that behavior. Yeah. And I think, you know, as disabled artists, you often feel the glass ceiling where there aren't the roles that you want or there aren't the platforms that your talent deserves. There was a beautiful story that happened that the, the mother of a child who um, has cerebral palsy, who wants to be a ballet dancer. He's a young boy. He's about, uh, you know, it's about nine. Um, and she had always felt that there's a moment that she's going to have to, you know, tell her son that that's not going to be something he'll be able to achieve. And there is an incredible dance sequence at the end of Teenage Dick, and we choreographed it in a way to celebrate Daniel's movement. Mm. And this mother wrote us the most amazing letter afterwards about how seeing Daniel perform that will change doors. She will help open for her child. Wow. And that can only be a good thing. Indeed. So I guess that's why it felt so important to do it in our first season. You know, myself as an actor, when I've appeared in something, you know, I also get similar responses, letters, etc. contact from people who have seen the show, who have been inspired to say, well, you know, my, my son or daughter has dwarfism and seeing you performing the players made me realize that indeed her or his or her life will not be something that will be limited in any way you know you're only limited by your own imagination and your own outlook on life so it's really lovely um that when you get something like that you realize not only are you providing entertainment but you're also inspiring as well which is a really nice feeling yeah i mean i think that's what motivates me as an artist i want to i want to tell stories that have transformational effect on people because I've had that moment in the theatre um, when I understand my existence a bit more. I, you know, I saw a play about a father who had dementia and it helped me process my grandfather's death in a way that I had never been able to until I saw the play because it helped me understand the experience of being inside his life in a way that I hadn't previously. And that's an incredible gift that storytelling could do. And that's why there is such responsibility to check whose stories we're telling. Because if we tell the same stories, we'll get the same results. And if you can't see it, you won't be it. We spend a lot of time reviewing how we were going to work um, with disabled people at the theatre, in the audience, but also artists, and making physical changes to the space. Um, but we pull together a, a group of patrons, audience members, experts and artists to help to advise us on how to make that show work in all senses. And it was such a valuable um, exercise to go through, really. And it's led to the establishment of kind of long term access group within the within the Dormar, which helps us to make programming more reflective of people's interests and needs. That's really good, Henny. That's excellent, yeah. The set designer, Chloe Lamford, for instance, um, very subtly built into the the set ramps so that the wheelchair user in the in the company could get around the stage uh, sort of imperceptibly it was it was mm. really challenging from all um perspectives but such a brilliant learning you know there is a movement called don't play me pay me which is actors saying basically you know if there's a disabled character in a play it should indeed be played by a disabled actor so it's really wonderful to hear you talking the way you have about this um so for me i mean i wasn't getting the roles that i wanted in theater so in the end, what I did was uh, I actually formed a theatre company called the Reduced Height Theatre Company so that I could indeed produce my own plays. So, for example, I never had the opportunity to do like a mystery play. And Inspector Calls is a particular favourite of mine. Um, 
But I thought, well, I'm never going to be cast in that play because, you know, I'm a disabled actor and it doesn't represent the writer's original vision. So, for example, if the inspector was somebody with dwarfism like myself, it would need to be part of the plot of the play to explain to the audience. But do you think in audiences are that stupid, need this explaining to them or would they just accept it? No, I, I think um, I think they can they can they can accept it absolutely, mm. um, and I think different essentially minority groups have, have different journeys. So, for example, um, an actor of um, a specific ethnic heritage might want that written into the part so that, that you know so they're not playing a cliche of themselves. You know, mm. I've worked with disabled actors who essentially want to play parts where that's not mentioned because the mm. point is they can they can and should be and are anything. Mm. Well, in the end, with the Ridgely Tight Theatre Company, I didn't end up doing an Inspector Calls. I did. Um, I would love to see that. <laughs> <laughs> I would too, yeah. I ended up doing See How They Run. And uh, the idea behind the formation of the uh, theatre company was to promote short actors as actors. And, um, you know, it was regardless of their height. And so what I did, I reduced the height of the set. and I shrank the scale down so that when the company were on stage... You know, we all looked kind of average height, as it were. It took the height out of the equation. We, on our opening night, the director, who was Eric Potts, he came onto stage to take a bow with us. And you heard an audible gasp from the audience because he actually looked like a giant. They were so used to seeing us on stage. And he kind of ducked through one of the doors. And so it was for me, then it was like, we well, yeah, had job done. People actually forgot that we were short on stage and enjoyed the play for what it was and our performances. So it leveled the playing field, basically which we'd never had before. That's so important. And, you know, mm. that's the same as when an actor does an accent. You don't want to, you don't want to be aware of that. You want, direct yeah. to, you want direct access to the story. But, you know, we should also should be... The visibility of that is really important. Mm. So for Daniel, he played this role at the Donmar Warehouse. He's a very successful actor in Australia, but he came to England. He played the role. He won the Stage Debut Award. He was immediately cast in a West End show and a show at the National Theatre. Mm. And his visibility will inspire change and inspire mm. other actors and make more directors and more producers think about which stories we tell and how we tell them. It's, it's a very challenging kind of life to be an actor on stage. And it, it um, you know, not after sympathy, but I, it does resonate with what you two do as well, Henny and Michael, by putting on productions. You kind of, you put your heart and soul into something and you put it up there for the world to judge and just hope they'll see it as you do and love it. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure that's the same for the listeners in terms of business ventures. If you've, mm. if you've designed a product or a strategy or, you know, you know, we're all trying to leave our mark in the world and do a thing, aren't we? Um, and that, you know, yeah. try, fail, fail better is, is the motto, isn't it? That's great. Yeah, I've never heard that before. Yeah, well, for me as an actor, I'm only as good as my last performance, um, which I always find hard to deal with because I'm expected to be better each time. You know, each thing I do, I think I'm expected to be better than I was the last time. But if you run a fish and chip shop, for example, you serve good fish and chips one day, the next day a customer comes in, they don't expect them to be better fish and chips than the day before, do they? <laughs> no. They, in fact, they want them to be the same as the day before. They want yeah. those fish and they, you know, they want that product served up to them for always and ever. Um, I guess until they're bored of their fish and chips and then they might try a pizza and the danger is they might leave you for pizzas. So okay. we have to take that attitude and say... Part of trying to be at the centre of a cultural conversation is asking those questions and pushing forward. So there'll be people listening, Michael, though, who uh, run businesses, who'll say, well, if I take a risk, it could cost me money, it could cost me my job, it could cost me my uh, damage to my reputation. So uh, what would you say to them? Um, 
our society right now collectively is really looking at equality and opportunity and so these are big questions that need to be part of the work we do and so i think challenging ourselves to move forward taking risks um being prepared to ask difficult questions to get it wrong to learn uncomfortable truths is is an inherent to success even though in the first stage it can feel hard um and that does mean listening more and sharing who has who has a seat at the table do the research um so speak to your stakeholders speak to your customers so you understand what they need and go for it but i think when you take those risks you open yourself up to new models our you know a production of blindness we made during the middle of the pandemic has got a global transfer which never would have happened if we didn't step up to some um challenges in terms of uh, blind representation the disabled community and their response to that uh, in terms of how we make theater in this moment allow ourselves to pivot into new forms mm. um using new technologies and from taking those steps we were rewarded with success with a product and and and, and growth as artists and producers ourselves we found new audiences and we gave new experiences to our current audiences you mentioned blindness which was a production that um that Omar put on um during covid times speak about the challenges of that and also the fact that um it was based on a controversial novel that you might not have realized at the time yeah so we were very fortunate to be able to make some work in august where there were very few other theaters actually producing in fact we were the first theater in london to reopen to audiences and it felt very important that we did that and um we opened with a socially distanced sound installation version of a novel by Jose Saramago called Blindness and the story was narrated by the wonderful Juliet Stevenson who is just brilliant um mm. and uh, it tells the story of a of a pandemic of blindness uh-huh. it's got runs set up for it in Toronto and in New York mm. and uh, it did a short run in Amsterdam before it got closed down again it turns out it's quite handy having a a show which can be toured digitally with no need for any of us to actually visit the theatres to to install it anywhere. Um so it was a brilliant piece of work but of course not without its controversy um because of the perceived equivalence between blindness and covid i.e. you know this is a plague which which is a disaster when it happens to you which mm. obviously isn't the experience of the blind community in the UK particularly. Did you manage to work things out as the production proceeded and you realized there was this kind of almost a kickback against it? from the blind community. Well, yeah, actually before it opened, we did loads of work with um experts. We worked with a woman called Professor Hannah Thompson who is a visually impaired academic and we discussed with her how to mitigate and uh, manage any offence that might be caused. Maybe might you can speak a bit more to how she advised. The show essentially uses this devastating pandemic as a metaphor for a society and in this moment we went this is the perfect story for now because we're in a pandemic but of course and i guess what I, the journey i've been on is understanding that you know nobody wants their disability used as a metaphor although that has happened sort of historically through literature and we reached out to and this is why we've spoken about using consultants we reached out to professor hannah thompson who was fascinating about the history of how blindness has been used in literature she identified specific bits of the story that were problematic e.g. sighted savior we had this discussion via podcast in a public space so that people could listen to us going on this process and they could listen to us listening to learnings from hannah which we then implemented and that fed into how the production of the whole was more accessible with audio description 
and about making sure it wasn't a blindness simulator. The work was better than it ever would have been because mm. the form matched the content. But even these terms, I wasn't aware of until we'd done yeah. the reaching out. So now as a you know program, right, I will, you know, make sure that I'm looking for these moments in the project and checking that I've done the research and the consultancy to set it up in the right way. And what it meant was that we we could confidently therefore promote the work to the blind community because we had mm. that validation. And all of these things meant that we were reaching new audiences and we wouldn't have had that confidence if we hadn't have um, done that consultancy. Mm. Was there any advice that Hannah gave you in those consultations that you um, were tempted to ignore because it ruined your artistic vision for the piece? Well, Hannah would have liked the piece entirely in blackout. Right. Although, you know, I think only about six or seven percent of blind people um, have no light perception. Mm. But she was said the less you lose light, the more equitable the experience is. The artists want to use light at some moments. And how do we serve both stakeholders, basically? So mm. there was moderation and moderating of advice. But I think even hearing the principles made sure that, you know, I think some of the best effects mm. in the show didn't use light and wouldn't have been there without that that thinking. Mm. So there won't be business owners listening to this who say, yes, we consult with our, our audience, our customers, we listen to them, and then go ahead and ignore that advice because A, it might cost too much or kind of B, steer their company in another direction. But as you say, it's very important to listen to that research that you do. Yeah, and you have to be prepared to hear hard things. Mm. Um and you have to be prepared to challenging yourself and challenging yourself is hard and important. Um, and, you know, and you have to make sure you're not putting pressure on your consultant to give you the answers you want. Mm. And uh, how does it feel when you are criticised for what you've been doing? And how important is it to um, actually take that on board and react to it and respond to it in a positive way? I think one of the hardest things in organisations, I think, is being prepared to fail. And if you can create an institution that is is flexible enough and confident enough in its mission that it is prepared to fail, then when it does fail, it learns from that and does better. I think those are the strongest institutions. And I think if you have an environment where you're very stressed and anxious and you won't take risks, then you're not going to be successful either. So the magic is encouraging a team that they can take a chance on something that won't always succeed. They won't get blamed for that. We'll build it into learnings. We spend a lot of time at the Donmar reflecting on the projects that we've done and how we could do them better next time without any kind of implication that uh, anyone's to, to blame for things not going right. And I think that makes us much stronger. It's really hard when you get it wrong. And it's really hard because there's always going to be a, a spread of opinion and stakeholders with different wants. So you're trying to say, I want to bring this story now, but am I bringing it in the right way? And you know, there's a danger the blind community wouldn't have thought we should have brought this story. Um, and so it was absolutely terrifying to think I'm going to get this wrong. But the act of, I guess, being vulnerable and then going to do the learning and the listening meant that we found things that we could implement and we changed what we did and we've got new policies. And so it was worth doing. So it's hard, but ultimately it's really enriching. For instance, in Toronto, I think they've changed their access policy in response to, to the guidelines which we've shared. So I'm um, really delighted that that's having an impact worldwide. Well, that's wonderful. Yeah, the work you're doing here is having an impact on theatres all around the world, which is fabulous. So, Michael, Henny, this has been a fascinating discussion, um, but I have one last question for you both. Uh, what has been the best and worst piece of advice you've been given professionally? 
Oof, I don't know any of you got one. I should, um... Okay, so I think my best one is, I was very lucky to hear um, Chris Smith, the former culture secretary, doing a fantastic talk a few years ago. And his advice was lead from the middle, not the front. And I really love that advice because I think there's a tendency for sort of hero leaders to kind of stride ahead and get their teams to follow them. Um, but actually, I really love the model of creating consensus, bringing a group of people with you, moving as one. And yeah, I think that's the most potent way of leading, really. And I sort of try to model that and I hope hopefully it, it works. But um, And then my worst piece of advice was um, three times I've been producer. This is before my time at the Dormer. I've been producer on three shows that have been fabulously successful in London. You know, I've had multiple casts, multiple runs in the West End. And three times some bright spark has said, we should take that to Broadway. And each three of those times, those plays have died terrible commercial deaths as soon as they hit Broadway. Um, and uh, so it's not, it wasn't good advice. I think it's a very different territories, um, but it was a you know, useful learning process, but never again. I mean, that's huge, isn't it, in terms of different markets and you know, understanding how, uh, how your product works in one space and with one set of stakeholders and another. I mean, that's a whole thing to dig into, isn't it? One of them did a huge amount of, of uh, runtime in London, did a tour, went around the world uh, and then went to Broadway and it ran for less than a week. So that was a bit embarrassing. We had to go home. Oh, try, fail, fail better. It's that thing, isn't it? I think the best, well, best piece of advice. Someone once told me, aim to be respected rather than liked. And I think that's good um, because I know I can shirk making tough decisions if they're unpopular. But actually, leadership can be hard sometimes. And and so respected rather than liked is something um, I try and stare at myself at in the hard times. And a bad piece of advice is, oh, it'll be all right. Um, and that <laughs> actually, if in your gut it's not, it probably won't be. And holding on to your gut instinct is hard actually because as you listen and as you open out and as, as you survey as you do that rather than plowing on ahead single-mindedly it's not something i've solved but the tension between your gut and what to do gets harder and harder to follow listen to your gut is still really important so michael henny thanks so much for being my figureheads today it's been a fascinating conversation full of so much valuable information. Thinking back over what you've said, um, personally, my takeaways would be listen to your audience and consult with people. It's about who you consult, isn't it? Because we're very good at consulting people just like us with opinions just like us. And actually that ends up reinforcing a thing. So I think it's always, you know, you know, lots of our social media platforms are echo chambers, aren't they? And, and mm. you know, and we can see how divisive our society has got because of that. So, mm. you know, it is being receptive to ideas outside of your immediate experience that I think have really set me on new creative journeys, basically. Yeah. I also think it was brilliant what you said about um, the, um, you know, you looked at figures of the disabled population within this country and felt that they were underrepresented both on stage and also within your audiences you know, you're not just focusing about your productions. You're also thinking about who is coming to see these productions as well. And that should also represent our society as a whole. Because actually, without looking at those concrete figures, you cannot face things that are important to face. And that helps tweak strategy or focus um, the type of project we next need to do in order to continue to deliver strategy. So about physical adaptation, isn't it? A lot of theatres that people work in, and the, you know, the majority of the West End are particularly inaccessible mm. because they're very old spaces. And and actually, we we're quite fortunate in this COVID moment to be able to take a moment and make our theatre much more accessible, so that we can just welcome all. 
Thank you so much, both of you. It's been really fascinating. And I wish you both the best of luck in the future. And I'll make sure I get to the Donmar and uh, witness some of these productions for myself. Please do. You're very welcome. Thank you. Yeah, we'll be looking forward to welcoming you once we're open soon. Cheers. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, good luck with all of that. Thank you. Join me next week when I'm speaking to Baroness Sue Campbell, one of the most respected and influential people in British sport. We'll be talking about her unique leadership style and how it's transformed women's football in the UK. And of course, all of this has been made possible by Barclaycard Business. 